2: mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and a member fdsc
3: welcome to the new books network
1: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today I'm delighted to be joined in hosting duties by my English department colleague, Olka Anjaria, scholar of South Asian Literature and Film, author of three wonderful scholarly books and many articles, and to top it all off, head of the Mendel Humanities Center. Olka, hi. Hello. Hello. Um, So both of us are lucky enough to be talking today with Rajiv Mohabir, a poet who seems to learn a new language every day before breakfast, publish at the rate of two books a year, and then translate a forgotten century old memoir about mass involuntary migration before lunch. Yeah, he actually did that. So Rajiv, you're a triple threat. You make us all look bad, but that's okay. Hello, and welcome (laughs) to recall this book.
3: Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. And y'all look really good. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, So Rajiv, I think we're going to get into your linguistic crossovers later. And I'll just say quickly, alongside your work in Bajpuri and Hindi and various Caribbean Creoles, you also work with um, Guyanese Hindi, which I'd love to hear more about. And um, you really have way too many publications to tell listeners about in the time allotted. So I'm going to encourage them to look you up on our website. Um, or on your website, but let me at least get the ball rolling um, by saying that in 2021, alongside his collaborative book, Between Us, Not Half a Saint, which I just hold in my hand for the first time today, he published both a collection of poems, Cutlish, Um, which we're going to be talking about a lot, and also Anti-Man, a hybrid memoir. So if you're following along at home, that means he actually publishes three books a year, not two books a year. (laughs) So just to give you an idea of Reggie's wonderfully witty linguistic facility, that title, he takes a word that is a Caribbean slur for queer man. And activates at least three mishearings, anti-man, as against man, anti-man before mankind, and also anti-anti-man, I guess we would say anti-man for the kind of older relative that he wants to be to his own beloved nibblings. And I learned that word also from you, Rajiv. So if that gives you a craving to hear more about the neological exuberance of his writing, you've definitely come to the right podcast. Um, so this conversation could go a thousand different ways, and I think it probably will. But you've generously agreed to kick us off by reading a poem and then maybe coming back with a couple later on, either read or sung. So can I just sort of hand the mic to you metaphorically so that we can get your own wonderful words rolling through our ears?
3: Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction as well. It's I'm just, like I said, I'm so grateful to be here and honored as well. It's lovely to be in person reco- reco- in uh, this recording studio with you both. Um, I'm going to start with reading um the poem, The Poco Kid, uh, which is one of the first uh, poems in the collection Cutlish. Now, a little bit about the title Cutlish is that it's a Berbitian recasting of the word cutlas, which in the Caribbean refers to the machete, um, the the Poco Kid, as in the post-colonial Kid, Ma Logan bolque. Maral Let's get one thing queer. I'm no Sabu-like sidekick. I'm the main drag. Ram-ram in a sari, on the street. I don't speak Hindu, Paki, or Indian. Can't control minds, have no psychic powers. I clip my yellow nails at dusk. On Saturday nights, I shave my head. Forgive me, Shiva. Forgive me, Saturn. I'm coolly on Liberty Ave, Daisy in Jackson Heights, where lights spell season's greetings to cover Christmas, Diwali, and Eid, where white folks in ethnic aisles ask, Will your parents arrange your bride? While Ma and I scope out fags, gaff and laugh while aunties thread our eyebrows. The subaltern cannot speak, Representation has not withered away. So this is a uh, in a in a form that I'm calling a chutney poem that's like based off of you know a 1960s song by Sundar Popo two non- 1960s songs by Sundar Popo, um, Kaise Bani and um, Scorpion Gill, and um, one of the main features of uh, you know. Chutney in that generation was that it stood at a crossroads of different languages mixing, uh, and there would always be a chorus that would be in Caribbean Hindustani or Trinidadian Bhojpuri, Guyanese Bhojpuri, Guyanese Hindustani. Um, this happens to be in Guyanese Hindi or Guyanese Hindustani, um, which is a descendant of Bhojpuri. So I think about Caribbean Hindustani as like this umbrella term for all of the South Asian languages spoken in the Caribbean, and from that become like or you know branch out the the various Tendrils of other languages, so Trinidadian Pojpuri, Guyanese Pojpuri, this kind of thing. Um, And so the chorus is in this language, uh, and the the chorus, you know, and I'm using these scare quotes, air quotes, I haven't figured out which one they are yet, um, that I read at the very end as a kind of repetition that closes out the poem. Um, and that repetition is kind of an Easter egg for me or for anybody else who's, who can make heads and tails of the language. Um, and this one specifically is from um, Guy Spivak's famous essay, Can the Subaltern Speak? And I thought it would be a real cheeky way to begin the book. You know, <laughs> let's get one thing queer. I was really excited about that beginning.
0: <laughs> but the uh, the original epigraph is, I mean, what you've done, you've also reversed the hierarchy because of course, post-colonial theory is all written in English, despite its claim to kind of alterity. And so by writing, by translating, transcreating mm-hmm. her line into Gini's Hindustani, and then writing it at the end in English, you're also, that's another cheeky refusal of that claim to alterity in a sense.
3: Yeah, thank you. Like the whole idea about how we make meaning available to people, it was really important to me. And thinking about how in this book specifically, the Guyanese bochburi here um, uh, has a meaning that's occluded to most of the readers. Whereas once upon a time, this would have been in my family, the first access that we would have. So thank you for noticing that.
0: Spivak gets all the credit for translating Derrida into English. (coughs) but You get the credit for translating her into (laughs)
3: i wonder what she would think she'd probably say you got this wrong this is not what i meant (laughs) thank you oh another easter egg in here is like all of the things that i claim to do and not to do are inauspicious so for example Mm. um, you know clipping my nails at dusk you're not supposed to cut your nails at night it's like really bad luck and shaving your head on a saturday that's miserable can you talk
1: about the writing process? Like, do you write the poems and then figure out where they go in the book or was this book written all of a piece or? Yeah,
3: yeah thank you. So I'd actually been working on this collection for about a decade um, in which I would write the pieces individually and to see where they were and go, where I was going with uh, how the, the choruses would occur to me first. So the, the Bhojpuri chorus would come to me as I was walking, as I was on the train, as I was like doing menial tasks, thinking about music, thinking about words that I had heard in songs that I wanted to put to use. Um, and so the the poems are like constructed from those uh, and so then to put the poems all together, now that was a task that took a really, really long time. I had to amass this, like all of these individual pieces and to see what could fit and what couldn't fit. There are so many poems that did not make this collection. Um, and I wanted to... I wanted to kind of toggle back and forth between a past and a present for the speaker. So as we see the the, the speaker's present, we get into the past. And part of it is that it's narrated. There's like an overarching long poem um, uh, where the Aji character or the grandmother narrates where we are from or the speaker is from that, uh, you know, it kind of hopefully feels a little bit like storytelling. But it was a mess. Like, oh, my God, like how many different versions of this book had come out? And like thinking about the ordering, you know, was something that took me and a, some uh, a lot of my friends um, a lot of time to kind of mm. – Piece together. We, I wanted to have things not really be. I'm going to hit you over the head with a hammer. Although some of them absolutely do hit you over the head with a hammer, um, and especially with the organization of um, you know the Kalapani poems, like later in the collection, um, I, that with a lot of uh, thanks to my editors at Four Way Books, uh, you know, I was able to come up with this kind of crescendo.
0: And were you writing at the same time as Antimon? Because it's interesting mm-hmm. that the two books come out at the same time. One is a Memoir, so you would think it ha- would have a more uh, coherent or clearly obvious uh, linearity, but actually, you've talked about how the memoir also toggles back and forth in time. So, was it was it two projects you're working at the same time? Were you thinking about time in both text in relation to each other, or was one after the other?
3: Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great question too because I like to say that the speaker of Um, Cutlish um, is in the last section of Antiman. This is who that Rajiv becomes when he's living in New York, the single life. Um, But yeah, I I began writing Antiman when I was uh, in in 2015, as 2014, excuse me, as a way to position my poetry on the continental United States as I lived in Hawaii. So I had a lot of projects kind of brewing, a lot of writing things happening that, you know, were amorphous. So, yeah, there's a lot of, I would say, subconscious connection between the two projects for sure, the two books for sure. And I I guess it's like a bad thing to call my books a project. I mean, Dorothy Alasky would probably be really angry about that. You know, she wrote this like wonderful um, chapbook essay like uh, poetry is not a project (laughs) which is you know something that i love to teach in my graduate class uh you know to to get folks out of this idea of okay well you know this is going to be a project that you're working on but like really truly uh cutlish began as what was an mfa thesis so the idea of the form of a poem and creating Mm -hmm. that was the mfa thesis so in my mind like you know it, it it fit into this idea of the project and to have these projects intersect like this there there's a lot of um uh Give and take. I I would imagine it to be kind of like a root structure of like two separate trees that share nutrients and resources. So
0: that's helpful. I was thinking of it as a larger project of which these were two, but two expressions. In other words, like there, there seems to be something when you read them together, something that you're trying to do with, and we'll talk about it. But with language and with history and with brokenness and with coolitude and all of these things, and then you express it in these two ways that that work complementary but it also makes you feel like publish more and you know express it in other ways they're all kind of experiment they're both experiments with with expressing this larger project is how I was reading it. But I like I like your take, too.
3: <laughs> well, thank you for that. You know, it's funny. You're right about that, about how these are different avatars of coolitude expression, thinking about the the, the container for a story or a poem mm-hmm. um, and thinking about how the different kinds of faces that it can have represents a, let's say, a constant evolution. That's that's a great thing to think so thank you for that.
0: And these are two written forms, but of course, there's no way that project could be expressed only in written form. It has to have oral components. So whether it's reading from it, which you are doing here, or I don't know perf- other kinds of performances, but there's no way it can end. This project mm. can end with the written word. And that's, I mean, I think that the in the midst of um, of Cutlish are pages in which the the Hindi alphabet is printed, in in appears several times with some changes kind of each time but that to me stands as a reminder of the sonic nature of the project which you can't I mean I can't especially since Hindi has a phonetic alphabet so when you see it you see sound not names of letters so I couldn't you can't read this this book of poetry through and not be reminded of that sonic element
3: Thank you. And that's hugely epistemological, I think, because of the fact that, um, like I said before, literacy is relatively new to my family. And so all of our stories and all of our songs were coded in our bodies in different ways before they were brought to the page. And so what it means for me to be so influenced by this archive of sound um, and bringing it to the written Word in the United States means a whole different kind of orientation and thinking through the discursive space of that performance, which is the white page with black letters on it, um which you know uh, um, you know I, to the, the expression in Hindi uh, you know, there's no difference between the written word and a buffalo <laughs> so you know it's it's arbitrary, right? Um but you're right about that that performance, and so actually, when I do read uh, these um poems and read these stories, I often sing.
1: Is that a good cue to ask you if you would like sing, sing a poem for us? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah,
3: um, yeah thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will sing. Um, there is uh, in Antiman. Uh, Antiman, so has it's constructed and woven of transcriptions, translations, uh, uh, hypothetical situations, poems, and linear narratives. Um, a personal essay. And so what I'll do is I will sing a song that my grandmother taught me. Um, and it is going to be called, I, what I'll do is I'll sing it first and then I'll read it in Bhojpuri, or, uh, in creole and then in English translation. And this is called uh, Aji
2: Recording, How Will I Go? Dulhan rove rove phiyake ghar jana, kahe ke rove phiyake ghar jana, phiyake ghar jana, kahe ke jana. Sāsūr māre māre baas dhanda Sāsūr māre māre baas dhanda Sāsūr māre māre nanadhagari āve Pīyake gharē jaana, pīyake gharē jaana Kahe Sayamare mare baans, mare bas leke mare mare bas danda leke mare mare gaale me bahi dal ke piya ke ghar jana ghar jana kahe ke, roe, ke ghar jana Kaise ham jaybo sasural chunari me lagal dag. Kaise hum chipao chunari me laagal dag. Dulahan cry for goi husband house. He cry and cry. Father in la
3: and mother-in-la does beat me. sister in law does insult me. My husband does give me one lash with one piece bamboo. My husband does beat me after he grabble me throat. How me go go a me father in la house? Me ni get one steen. How me go hide am? The bride cries, she must go to her lovers. She cries because she must go. My in-laws will beat me, my sister-in-law will curse me out. She cries because she must go. My love will hold my neck and beat me with a bamboo rod. The bride cries, she must go to her lovers. How will I go to my in-laws with a stained veil? How will I hide it? the stain in my veil
1: yeah thank you <laughs> that's amazing can, can you can you talk us through the genealogy like is the song itself a song that you you learned and then yeah,
3: yeah thank yeah. you so yeah you know it's funny um so a lot of this song actually i learned in the 3 days leading up to my brother's wedding wow. uh, which happened in my parents' house but my brother was married at 23 um to an american woman they had a, like a a ceremony in um a flower garden and not an actual like uh Big affair. Let's just say they had to get married relatively quickly, if you know what I mean. So <laughs> I have no idea what you mean. No. <laughs> and so um, you know, my grandmother was there, and so like I would st- I-, I sat with her, and that was when I could feel the lamentation of her being kind of like away from her community. Like my grandmother was one of those women that people would call to your wedding to sing these songs specifically. And I was like, you know, Aji, you know, what kinds of songs would you be singing today? And so she would she walked me through singing all of these songs. Now this this one in particular has some interesting valences. There is the idea of the woman leaving her birth home uh, to go to her in laws, and that means like a whole new culture, a whole new way of folks interacting with one another, a whole different kind of sexual economy in the house um, where, you know, she sometimes falls victim to the whims of the men of this new patriarchal line that she's like joining. Um, And so my grandmother sang this song. And in it, I could also hear echoes of diaspora, like thinking about what does it mean for our ancestors to have left and come into the Western Hemisphere? Um, not knowing what the culture would be, not knowing how, what kind of abuses they would suffer. And then the end of it, she had this kind of switch. And this is like, you know, every time she would sing it, there were, the, the the words would change just a little bit at a time. The tunes would stay the same. The words would change. And in this one particular iteration, I was so interested in the way that she brought up kaiseme jaibo sasural, how will I go to my in-laws' house? Um, I have a stain on my veil. Um, and this is also like one of those bhakti poetic... Um, about bhakti poetics, actually, of uh, what it means to leave this body and go to the next world. Mm -hmm. So then that's another layer of that of that leaving. And so, you know, the sad part of my learning the song is I didn't ever learn it in community, where women would be repeating these lines to each other, um, and kind of building on one another. With my grandmother at the lead (laughs) i wish i could have been there you know in the you know what would that have been the 1930s 1940s that would have been amazing
1: this is a dumb linguistic question but creole you said creole like sort of unmodified does that mean it could be one of many creoles or this is a yeah
3: so yeah thank you for that so the so creole is really it's it's a language that derives from a pigeon after the pigeon becomes uh, regularized and dexterous, um, able yeah. to express like future and yeah. conditionals. Um, and it, people like are like when it becomes a first language. Well, that's true, but not true because cruel, creole wasn't my grandmother's first language. Um, it was, I would say one of her first languages. Mm. So they, it, it existed together. So her parents spoke a pigeon. Um, uh, and she, my grandmother then spoke, let's call it creole with a little, um, you know, uh, one next to it Uh as like the first generation. After that, Creole changed uh, as it became more and more used widely as a first language and Pochpuri fell out of usage. So, yeah, my grandmother did speak Guyanese Creole. She called it Creoleese. Um, Mm -hmm. So there, there is that part of the Creole. And so the Creole that I grew up speaking and knowing was my parents' Creole, but I would only ever speak it to my grandmother. So I would be speaking in her Creole 1. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> Which was just very closely uh, related to the pigeon. Whereas, you know, people in my generation, would, that would be third or fourth generation Creoles or Creole that they're speaking. And so in Guyana, and in part, particularly in the, the place where my grandmother was from, the Creole was kind of specific to that area. So to say Guyanese Creole is... Uh, it, 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 it it's a shortcut. The Creole that my mom's family all spoke was completely different. They have different names for things. My, my mom's family was from the city um, and my dad's family was from the country. And so being in the city, my uh, nana, so my mom's parents had a lot of access to, you know, international people and more and more things happening, way more things than my father's family did in Burby's Crabwood Creek.
1: I mean, I I just love that it exists in these three versions, and I'm trying to think about how they relate to each other. And that that point about the multiplicity of Creoles only kind of deepens the complexity of it and the decision that you made, I mean, which presumably many people who have Creole as one of their languages make, that you can sometimes write things in it, but you're always going to have an English version, or you will often have an English version, because that's more, what, standard or legitimated or...
0: Well, it relates yeah. to the question of community, too, because mm. I feel like I don't I didn't see it as an accident that you read the three in that order because each one gets more displaced from community and I think loses some meaning in that. So when you hear the fo- the, the wedding song, not only is it performed in a community and learned in a community, as you said. But it's also a ritual song about the bride leaving the parents' house. It's not actually about how the bride feels. It's a ritual wedding song. Then when you get mm-hmm. it in the in the Creole version, you can see some of that. In the English version, it just sounds like a, a song about people beating their daughter-in-law. Yeah. yeah, Which, like, takes all of that community out of it and becomes kind of... I mean, the whole thing, it's tragic, but, like... When you sing it, I don't see it as tragic, even though the story is still about beating their daughter-in-law because it feels ritualized and communityized. And when you read the last one, it makes me sad in a way that the first one didn't. So I don't know if that... It's part of the, what happens in, what you, you, go, you don't call it just translation, but transcreation, it becomes something else as it loses that
3: connection. It becomes lonelier, right? It becomes lonelier. Yeah, I feel that too. And like, so part of like my act as a translator is then also to have another leaving Right. I mean, it's kind of like it it kind of is like also propelled through time, unfortunately, with the the deterioration or the lessening of the poetry into the English.
0: Yeah, it is. It's like a it's like a commentary on on that loss of leaving and what what it strips away. So what it becomes in the English is such a you read it even sadder. You read it as a sad poem when you read it in English. I didn't read it. I didn't hear you read mm. it as a sad poem in the first two languages. So I'm just, I wonder, like, and, and maybe that is, that's a, maybe it is. It's a commentary on, on all that is lost when something, when everything gets put into, into this standard English where you just, you just can read it as sad rather than the different kinds of meanings and valences that were coming into it earlier.
1: There's a line from Cutlish that I has just been resonating for me, which is um, you say, uh, I am an expert at amnesia, new moon faced, I have my own mantra. And I was like, I need to ask him about that because that I can't be you because like in a weird way, you're an expert at amnesia, but you're an expert at amnesia by undoing it. I mean, you're an expert at genealogy or lamination or, or layers.
2: Thank
1: you. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> like I don't see you very amnesiac. You don't seem to be a very amnesiac.
3: Yeah, (laughs) that so that poem, Hiranya Garba, this poem is, uh, you know, dedicated to that traveler who left India, who was a hijra or, you know, of what in India now they call them people of the third gender mm. which i think is also a little bit of a problem as soon as the state locates you then all of a sudden you have rights but then you have so many fewer rights because of it mm. um but it's a queer traveler um uh and um what it what it meant for them to have to come across the sea mm. uh you know and to be checked by the ch- ship surgeons you know to make sure all of the anatomy and everything was uh, healthy and 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 right according to what the Britishers thought um but there's also like that 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 part of me and that part of my story where you know I was expert at amnesia in that like I didn't know what was lying latent in me until I started to dig away and so there's this whole new kind of madness that has like st- uh, stalked into life uh because of that like you know just like d- dusting the 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 ground just a little bit to see what the what it would bear for me. So, but thank you for that. I mean, I, if I could go back and look at the, you know, the 15-year-old Rajiv and be like, one day you'll know enough about where you're from and who you are that it would feel like, um, you know, you will have this kind of sense of wholeness uh, without fracture, then I would be like astonished. I'd be like, yeah, right. I wouldn't believe mm. that.
0: Well, it is a truly a beautiful story of the, you know, your grandmother's story and she, her grandparents came over, um, her father, I guess, was born on the ship. Um, so she's the, you know, she, she comes over and then she has, she brings with her, even though she wasn't born there, brings with her these songs. She's like a repository of this, mm. this beauty and this, um, these stories. And then, you know, has, has children who basically in to different degrees just don't want to be part of that story anymore. And then you said she had 42 grandchildren And, you know, and then you, you were one of those 42 and was able to, to connect with her in this way. And through that, activate these, like this cultivated Mm. amnesia. So it's not just physical distance. And of course, the, the, you know, the amnesia of leaving a place of not knowing where you're going, the the violence and the brutality of it, the new place, let alone those conditions, but the then the kind of cultivated forgetting that happened in that generation. And then you were able to kind of, I don't know, it just it, it's very moving and it's beautifully told in Antiman. But I don't know if you want to talk more about like how that happened, how that, you know, you, your 15 year old Rajiv didn't know that was going to happen. So how did something so magical happen in real life?
3: Thank you. I think it's the pharmacon of Western education. Mm. Um, you know, if for for, you know, <laughs> that should be the motto of our university. <laughs> <laughs> Pharmacon is us. Pick your poison. Yeah. In which, yeah. you know, it it kind of yeah. drove my parents' generation to to eschew everything that was, you know, the backwards, coolie Hindu ways of doing things things. Whereas an undergraduate student at University of Florida, I studied religious studies and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was interested in folk iterations. I was lucky in that, um, you know, the director of my undergraduate thesis, Dr. Vasudha Narayanan, is really interested in the vernacular Veda. And so what Mm -hmm. that meant would mean the iterations of Ramayan that would be told in my family and Who would know that but my grandmother? And so going back to her and being like, oh, my God, you know all of this stuff. I'd been studying Hindi for a while at that point. I was able to, like, translate some of her songs rudimentarily into, um, you know, talking about the wedding um, ritual in our family's uh, family history. Um, And that's how this all kind of started. And I didn't think that this was creative writing at all. I didn't imagine it to be like an important task. It was just I was you know, scratching an itch that I wanted to know. Because, um, like, in my mind at that time, without doing the research, without having gone to India, I was like, oh, everybody knows this story. Let's remind there's one story, right? I mean, but that's not true, as we know. There are as many uh, stories and iterations of Ramayana as there are people. <laughs> so th- this is how that all began. Um, I didn't think that uh, it would have much of a place in the world. And, in fact, when I put together... Uh, a rudimentary translation in collection of my grandmother's stories and sent it to folks to look at. People were like, oh, this is like, this belongs in a museum. This isn't actually literary. And what I was hearing was, oh, you know, we don't appreciate oral culture. So it was like
0: folklore or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. This is not the standard version. Who can you tell me? Can you give me the biography of the pe- the person who wrote this, and then I'll I'll validate mm-hmm. it. So, and that 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 has been kind of the thing. How can I have been so incredibly inspired by this oral tradition and all of this oral literature? I guess, um, uh, and bring that into American letters. It's it's something that baffles me still. I feel like I have to explain X, Y, and Z just because I have this yeah. feeling that people aren't ready for the oral. History of this all, or the history of orality of it all.
0: It's not helped by being the Poco kid who is told that the subaltern cannot speak. Mm.
3: <laughs> right, how that reifies the silence and the silencing.
0: That's not what was intended, obviously, by the statement. But I, I don't know. It starts yeah. out your book. It feels like it must. I'm thinking about it from your, the perspective you're describing and it could feel like an kind of injunction, a refusal yeah. of that attempt to, to do it because it's an impossible task to ever recover that voice. So so that's where it builds. That's where it does become a contribution to American letters because you're giving the voice yeah. you're, not, you're refusing the refusal.
1: But sort of going along with the the difficulty of it, the exhaustion of it and um which I, I hear you saying that even though I still notice you publish three books a year, I, I do hear you saying that. Do you know this account of um, Irish literature? Uh, um, I think I want to say it's Seamus Malin maybe, but it's um, Silence or Eloquence. And he says that to be Irish and to be kind of, you know, marginalized vis-a-vis English literature, you have these two responses. One is to sink into silence, and he kind of locates Beckett there. And the other is profuse, almost logarithmic eloquence. Like, in other words, in order to be able to speak at all, you have to be able to overspeak. So which would be Swift or Joyce or a lot of other writers. But, you know, the gift of the gab, which actually has a kind of postcolonial jab to it, I think, you know, the notion that if you're Irish and speaking at all, you're speaking too much, you're flowing, you know, does
3: that, I don't know, does that resonate at all? Yeah, <laughs> That is profoundly resonant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally.
1: Hey, do, do you feel like um, reading that other poem we talked about, Kalapani? Oh, or, yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, I would love I to. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So Kalapani is an idea, is a, a kind of uh, rhetoric, I would say, that governs relationship of uh, person-to-land and and person-to-community. Kalapani literally means black water. It was thought and believed that crossing the black water, crossing the ocean into a new world, would erase you of caste and kin, where you would be nothing and no one and ritually contaminated and polluted, but, like, to hell with you anyway, because you had crossed away. Um, And Kalapani is something that haunts the story of uh, Indian... indenture and migration uh, across the world and thinking about it as thinking about the darkness of the water as not being an ill, but thinking about it as being that space of infinite creativity. Um, That's kind of where I see this poem um, uh, happening in this in this book. So it goes, my poem is Kalapani means water's black means sea-crossers, means to forget secrets and rituals, means conversion, means cloud cover, means night, means sunset, means loss, means water in the breath, means to mislay your name, means orphaning, means taking the name coolie, means breaking under bundles of cane stock, means Guyana, means migration, means America, means voyage, means to remain living, means planting seeds in your ancestors sweat means salt and sea change means a new store uh, means a story's new lee means a yield of fruit means to generate means to rise as the sun oh thank you well.
0: i was thinking of that theme throughout throughout cutlish and and the memoir because there's along with Galabani there's the theme of being broken. That's a theme that comes up. So it's like obviously Bojburi is broken Hindi, Creole is broken English, and the families and lineages and possibilities broken by indentured labor. But there's a claim, just like there's a claim in that poem to the creativity of Kalapani. There's a there's a claim, I think, I think to the creativity of being broken. I mean, maybe you move back and forth a little bit because you want, you seek your your persona, your narrator your narrators seek wholeness at times and you see why being broken is painful but there's also i don't know there's also a, a value something that emerges in that brokenness that's quite beautiful i don't know how you how you see it if or if that's something the project continuously questions the the need and desire to be whole and the also the reality that being broken can be beautiful
3: i wonder if i will ever feel any of those things 100% of the time, like, I'd still feel quite fractured and fragmented um, often. um, And I feel whole as well. So maybe it's that ambivalence that is like coming through. uh, But what you're saying is that there's beauty in that brokenness. And I I totally, I totally see that it's like, you know, Naipaul famously saying nothing good was ever created in the West Indies. And I want to say bullshit to that. I mean, what was created was beautiful. And like still being created, isn't,
1: isn't that why Derek Walcott called him VS Nightfall?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the the, I mean your story is it, it's incredible because of, it's more. I mean we think about there's more conversation now about kind of hyphenated identities in the U S, but which is great and important. Um, but yours is like a, doubly hyphenated. You know, you talk about how going to India and you, you don't fit in in India because you have this story that is kind of untold, the disappeared, the people who left, the disappeared. And then you talk about in the U.S., you know, people just think you're Indian or South Asian, which is not uh, totally wrong, but it's not correct. And um, I mean, Guyana itself, I love the, the poem that you called Guyana where you say... Guinea, New Guinea, Ghana, Gatineau. I mean, like, what is Guyana? It's not a thing that most Americans have even heard of. So, even if you were to try to explain to (laughs) the open minded
1: listener. Guadalupe, (laughs) Guatemala, Gucci, Guelph
0: even if you were trying to explain and say, This is where my story is, it would be so. I mean, but then, but then I think about it and I'm like, But yours is the whole story. All these other ones that fetishize the, the, the closeness of identity and place, they're the ones missing out. The transit is I know this is a theme in Caribbean, you know, literature and, and intellectual thought, but I, I found that so powerful. I wanted, I want your story to be the whole story. And I want all these other ones to be the fragments, I guess. That was my investment in, in wanting to rewrite all of the stories of, of, of people to focus on transit and creativity. And to marginalize staying
3: in one place. Yeah, thank you. I mean, because it's so funny in the United States we have this idea that you know we were we were here forever and like our institutions are so great and we're descendants of classical culture. That's not true, you know. Like, I mean, we we are a settler colony, um, you know. That's extractive. There was such a huge break between any kind of um, uh, in any like you know European. Um, knowledge creation system that wasn't uh, that, that wasn't routed through um, you know Arabic learning that uh, we forget that oh actually no, like the, the Western institution isn't this like huge uh, you know, timeless thing. Um, but thank you for that. I want it to be that as well. but like you know it's funny because after writing, after writing Antiman man and Kutlush and hearing people talk, I, I see that there are a lot of folks out there who are winding together the disparate threads of, you know, their belonging or belongings, multiple belongings. And it's, you know, I, I there are so many people in the world who speak in, um you know, going back to Spivak, you know, the, these strategic essentialisms so that they can be understood in whatever time and place, right. um, you know, and that's not always wonderful. But maybe it accomplishes something initially to, like, clear some space for something to get done. But to the point about Guyana, and this is one thing that I have refused to write about. But after after actually the the Zac Efron, is it Zac Ephron movie comes out, I'm gonna have to like start saying, okay, this is the thing when people are like, What's Guyana? Yeah. Like Jim Jones. Uh, and then people are like, Oh <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid, yes. Wow. So and, and that's one of the things that I have like um, kind of divorce myself from writing about right now doesn't mean that I won't. And it, it's funny. My, my brother-in-law is named Jones, uh, last name yeah. Jones, and my sister's named Jones now. And it's funny because he was like – because his family is also Guyanese, uh-huh. Um And he was like, well, why aren't you writing anything about, you know, Jim Jones? And yeah. I was like, jo- oh, man, okay. Okay, I'll write you a poem about yeah. – about you know this connection to Guyana because I don't know and uh, you know it, it was in the manuscript for a moment and then I was like uh, if it's in the, man, in the manuscript I'm, it means like I'm gonna have to build around it too and I'm like I'm not ready for that emotionally but maybe I will be. Can, can I ask you
1: a question which basically it's a one word question and the one word version is Hawaii question mark but like I could spin it out a bit more which would be about the point you're making about you know destinations and authentic or leveraged identities and essentialism and and you know, conglomerated places like the United States of America and then places like Hawaii, which is an island. It's its own, has its own lineage, has its own monarchy and back long genealogy. And it, I guess it's, a, I guess the question is whether being in Hawaii, like you did your PhD there, right? Like, was that an important space for you to think about those third spaces or those elbows, like the ways that we don't get, I mean, that the continental logic is a little short sometimes?
3: Absolutely. And, and especially around my own kind of understanding of uh, the settler colony and what it means to have be an American and, um, you know, be an American presence in the world. Um, you know, as I was a graduate student employed by the university, which is, you know, a project of the the United States of America in Hawaii, um, was really eye opening. I call it like a political education on the run, where seeing what was happening at the time uh, was... Life changing for me. Um, I there there's so many there's so many ways to go to, to 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 dive into this, but I'll say that uh, Hawaii has had a history of indentured labor as well, I'm drawing from um, Asia, and it was really really cool for me to go to this other space and to see the way indentured labor had formed a pigeon and a creole and like how folks were living in identities there and how there was this book that was written. Um, I don't remember who it was. It was an academic text called voices of the cane field. And it was like Japanese songs from indentured laborers. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel like this rhymes a lot with like what I'm trying to do. Um, but there in, in, um, in Hawaii, another thing that I like, kind of, I was open to, was that, uh, you know, my friends were sovereignty activists, um, and to see like indigenous struggle there really changed the ways that I was thinking about my own entanglements with empire? What does it mean to be a graduate student, you know, and have this kind of privileged identity in a place where people are dispossessed of their homes and their lands? Um, How I then can be like, oh, how can I be here ethically? You know, what does that mean for me as somebody who has this post-colonial experience? How can I resonate that with folks around around me and actually, you know, fight for, um, you know, the same things that my friends were were putting their lives on the line for, right? And, and nothing short of, like, land back, uh, which is, you know, the, definitely the politics of a lot of the sovereignty activists in Hawaii.
1: Um, so I feel like we're sort of rounding the corner to home here, but, Olka, do you have, like, a final thought or question that you want to round things up? Um,
0: just how do you stay so happy? <laughs> There's some, some of the things you describe in both of these texts are incredibly painful and and some of them are violent I mean there's of course your relationship with your father but like the persistent homophobia and racism that you encounter and and the, the writing remains so I don't know how do you not fall into bitterness I mean we mentioned Naipaul already who's my paragon for for, for turning these feelings into I guess bitterness and maybe even worse you know What's bitterness when it's projected outwards to other people, um, and you know, like contempt, I just, yeah. yeah, contempt. Yeah, angrezi ki You say, may each face whoever said speak English find their own tongue fettered and split. My mixed blood hardening their faces. There's, there's anger, and there is, and it's just you know, you you feel it viscerally. It's it's very visceral. It's anger and frustration, and and yet. And there's so much, there is so much joy in it and there's so much love. And so I just, I'm, how do you, it's it's so wonderful because I, you know, again, I'm invested in wanting those two things to exist and I go back myself between those poles. But how do you, as a, as a creator, as a writer, as a poet, how do you think about the relationship or as a human honestly how do you think about the relationship between
3: those things I mean it's pretty dark like what I write about is very dark um and it is a sad it, it is sad um but I will say part of the joy that I feel is that um I'm dreaming up a coolie future uh, through the writing uh, using the languages and the tools that I already have um and another thing that's really cool that like always like makes me feel like I'm doing the work of my ancestors or I wish that my Aji could see this is I go to universities across the United States. I'm in the Library of Congress. I go to these places and I speak our broken languages in the heart mm. of empire that thinks it swallowed us, but we are not digested. Mm. Um, and so that's, I you know, that that fills me with this kind of, uh, you know, uh, Krantikari post-colonial joy that...
0: That's um, lovely. And that's... Um it is it's powerful it's not just symbolic it means something to have those words and all of them it's their broken forms on the page it's poetry it's beautiful it's lyric it's song it's joy and i don't think it's a small thing so i really i really appreciate that about your writings i think it gives other people joy as well so thank you for right.
1: that you. okay okay so before we descend into the The darkness, again, that's probably a great place to wrap up. (laughs) So, so, uh, Reggie, this has been a real pleasure. I just want to start, uh, OK, thank you for hosting with me. I hope not for the the last time. Yeah. Um, And if you enjoyed this and you enjoy thinking about poetry, dear listeners, I think you may also want to head to our Recall This Book archive um, via the New Books Network or via recallthisbook.org and listen to earlier conversations with, for example, George Caligaris, which is RTB 74 with Sean Hill. RTB 75, and also coming up in two weeks, a rebroadcast of our wonderful conversation between Roger Reeves and David Ferry. And if this conversation instead has made you want to hear more about Caribbean culture and politics, I think you might enjoy our conversation with historian Vince Brown about his amazing and now prize-winning book Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, and that was RTB 34. So, Rajiv, just in conclusion, thank you so much for today's conversation.
3: Thank you. This was such a joy, and I... I'm so grateful for the space that you've given to me.
1: Well, we are grateful to you, especially for rechristening our recording studio. So, thanks for that.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Recall this book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.